Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. This week I'm talking with Patrick Jones. Here's a little bit from Patrick. Why are we a society that is a wrecking society, a barging society? Why are we that? I mean, we're also a society of lovely, generous, warm, giving people. But why ultimately is our, do we rely on an economic form that is trashing the planet? How have we arrived there? How have we got there? Well, it's a long and slow movement. My girlfriend and I got to know Patrick and his family well when they hosted us at their house, offering a unique insight into the way they live. Here are some details from our sponsor for this week before I tell you more about our time together. A brand new product to market, Roaming Company produced the highest quality fresh mints you can find and through a connection to local artists have created an entirely different mint experience. Available only in select coffee shops, partnered locations and online. You can learn more at roymintco.com and share their journey by following Roymintco on Instagram. Neo-peasant is a term I had not heard of before. Neither was the concept of artist as family. But both of these beautifully sum up the way my guest for this week and his family live. They live in Dalesford with limited monetary income, choosing to live in a materially simple way, a way that enables them to live a life that is rich and complex with skill, knowledge, connection and purpose. My experience of living with Patrick Jones and Meg Oldman, even though it was for less than 24 hours, left an impact that I am still understanding more than a month later. Thanks for joining me, and I hope you enjoy listening to Patrick Jones on the subtle disruption of artists as family. Yeah, so Patrick, thanks for being willing to be a guest on the show. My first question is always about, which is quite telling in this scenario, but where are we? Like, why have you chosen this place for our conversation? Where are we and why have you chosen? Well, this is, I guess, my bedroom library. Although I did have a, a vision the other day of the library, all the books, row by row, being taken away and sold oh, did or, you? or given away yeah, and replaced with little carvings, objects, some useful, some completely useless of, yeah, Hawthorne carvings from the forest. Yeah. That's just nearby. So, and it's really just thinking about Western philosophy making and just the reliance on the printed page or the screen and just how that is both a miracle and how wonderful that is. But also there's a great question of what separates us from thought and the biophysical world. And so while these books are 25 years of collecting and thinking and a community of authors, I suppose, there's also this sort of strange unsettlement about their presence and particularly in thinking through how to remake or how to reperform ecological society. And I wonder whether our reliance on printed text is just yet another barrier between our relating to the more than human and, yeah, I guess our Earth others and the biosphere more generally. Yeah, I think... So I guess we're in this room as because it's one of the quietest places <laughs> in a very busy household. Yeah. We had, there's five adults living here at the moment, a couple of kids, about 20,000 bees. Oh, is there? Do you have five salmons? Yeah, hives, we yeah. have hives, yeah. yeah. Three, three ducks or two ducks and a drake and chickens and yeah. a Jack Russell called <laughs> <Yeah>. Zero. <laughs> so this is a little place of solace, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Do you think what you're saying then about the printed text, are you getting at something like, you know, it's very easy to read about something and stay disengaged. Is that what you're getting yeah, at there? Yeah. yeah, yes. And I reckon Western institutional learning is very much predicated on that. There is very... The separation from theory and practice is quite pronounced now mm. in our society. So yeah. you don't get the, the closing of... or the relationship 
between practice and theory as sort of a feedback. Um, It's more and more rarefication. And I think, you know, I say this as a writer, as as a published author, you know, I think writing is very much the heart of estrangement, of ecological estrangement. Yeah, wow. I mean, that just prior to this, you took us on a walk. So we're in Dalesford, just so people know. Talk a bit more about the place where you live that you've built up over the past 10 years too. But we went on a walk just down the road to, I guess, the local forest. And I guess the contrast to what we're talking about there, what you're talking about there with books, to what we just went and did there and you talking about the ecology of that place and the introduced species and the indigenous species and then listening to your four-and-a-half-year-old son, you know, being able to identify the different mushrooms around the place and spot them and that kind of, you know, that I guess that's an example of the applied knowledge Mm. that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, and a deep connection to an intimate place that provides the knowledge, which is very different to institutional knowledge getting or paid for knowledge getting. And it's not to separate the two out by any means or polarise them. But I, I look at these books and I, I am both excited and also, but you know, by the possibility, by the ideas that have been presented. And I can see my own book there sitting in the shelves as, as wanting to contribute to that community. But at the same time, there's a sort of a death-like quality because I know where I'd rather be speaking from or even considering or thinking from, and that is that near forest, because that gets us past the anthropocentricness of the book world as this human-only domain. And, of course, there are great books that speak to that as well. We talked about radical mycology and I think the secret... Life of Trees, two books that have just recently come out that can really inform us about, um, you know, the greater sentience or more than human sentience of the world. But I do have a strange, almost unhealthy relationship to books and writing and, you know, and the publishing world generally. (laughs) And what gets published, I think, is, you know, there is a lot of cultural gatekeeping, maintaining the the great myth of Western culture through the publishing houses. You know, memoir is such a big thing, and I've written a book of memoir. You know, the, the stories of trials and tribulation. But this, the dominant story, and I guess that's what I wanted to talk to you about today, the dominant story that isn't reported, or I don't see discussed in contemporary Aussie culture, is the creation myth, of the Western creation myth. And... Australia, of course, is not just a Western culture. In fact, it's it's indigenous foremost. But in the last couple of decades, it has been overtaken by Western imperialism, uh, which has spread out to almost every inch of the, the country and affected every every square mile of it. And that that myth, or our creation myth, that never gets talked about never we never learn at school which is remarkable because every other culture that i know of their creation myth is right in the foreground and i suppose you know in a way people think oh our creation myth is uh, the garden of eden mm. adam and eve the expulsion That's what comes up. yeah um and that that is certainly a creation myth but the one that actually i think is more significant than that that forms us that that impacts us that that is you know, has created the death of the Great Barrier Reef, uh, climate change, and great social injustices, all the attempts at mitigating suffering in human life and fucking things over for everything else in that attempt yeah. comes from kind of corruption of three characters. The first one is Pandora, the first mortal. She is hope and insight. The second is Prometheus, the god of techniques or mastery or memory, and he is foresight. And the twin brother of Prometheus is Epimetheus, who's the god of hindsight. And so with insight, foresight, and hindsight, you have a, a kind of beautiful trio of checks and balances and, and feedback loops. And in that story human beings can actually be accountable mammals of place 
we can actually not trash the planet. We can actually perform as tool-making animals and know how to live on the world without stuffing it over for everyone else, everything else. But we don't honour that trio. We only honour Prometheus, the toolmaker, the mm. master. Mm. The foresight. The foresight, exactly. Yeah. And we are so smug with Prometheus that Epimetheus, who's mm. the fool, the foolish brother, the god of the fault of forgetting, of amnesia, and what I call the precautionary principle, he is what should be there alongside techniques, alongside his twin mm. brother as the precautionary principle. And then Pandora is who Epimetheus is forced to marry. So Epimetheus and Prometheus are titans. Pandora is the first woman or the first human. And so Epimetheus marrying Pandora is a kind of consummating of the human race as kind of godlike, but mm. mortals, mm. but we have to die. And then she is charged, like Eve was later, as you know, bringing death and disease and pestilence that has escaped her jar or box, Pandora's jar. And she is sort of held as the... This is in the rewriting when classical Greece is becoming extremely patriarchal and misogynistic. Yeah. So this is Platonic, the Plato's Forum, increasingly uh, getting rid of Epimetheus and Pandora and foregrounding... Prometheus. Even then, so that's when it kind of started. Yeah, yeah, because the earlier stories, the earlier tellings were much more, early Greece was much more matri matriarchal, gender, much more gen gender distributed. And the Pandora myth in much earlier stories of tribal Africa and in the bottom of the jar of tribal Africa, um, of Pandora's jar in tribal Africa, beer is what is brewed. So Pandora is the fermenter. She works alchemically with the wild ecology of life to make plants into beautiful inebriation <laughs> yeah. for life. Yeah. And, you know, compare that to the alcohol industry today, which is total Promethean. It's, mm. it's about control. It's about industrializing strains of yeasts into predictable outcomes. Yeah. And so Pandora, who was hope was subverted through classical patriarchal Greece into expectation, Ex expectation and predictability. All our institutions of the West are all about confirming predictability and making sure that we live in a controlled planet. So we are wild fermenters here. Meg's fermenting table is like the hub of our household. So fermenting going on out there right now? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'll quickly run through that table, actually. There's several types of sauerkraut, several types of mead, two ty uh, uh, an apple cider, a summer fruit wine, um, jun, which is like a honey-based um, kombucha. There are various pickles, uh, lacto-fermented pickles. There is a kefir cheese being made. And there's probably several other things as well. So all of that is wild-fermented. So drawing on the ecology, the, the invisible ecology of bacteria and fungis that are airborne and utilising them and being in relationship, not buying industrial yeast that's been lab-coated <laughs> and studied within an inch of its life and controlled and predictable. This is, this is about creating uncertainty and embracing uncertainty. So the fermenting table is sort of the hub of our permacultural neo-peasant household, I suppose. A an engagement with wild ecology here in our home, just as we do in the forest nearby when we're foraging mushrooms or doing forest work to um, intensify the biodiversity of the forest. Yeah. Do you see, I really resonate with that idea of wanting to get rid of uncertainty. I think that's been a big shift in my way of thinking over the past little while and learning how to become much more comfortable with the uncertainty even in what's going to happen in my own life mm. and um, not being attached to outcomes and the way things should be and, and there's been an, an amazing liberation mm. in that as well and so much beauty has come from that change in mind into my own life. Mm. Which sounds like that's the Pandora 
part of that that group, isn't it? Is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and I guess the f- the feminine within us. I think that I think that's the other thing too is that that those those three figures everywhere we see in the corrupted classical Greek misogynistic version. But I'm really trying to identify with those three creation figures in in their in their earlier form before they were reframed. Yeah. It's a bit like sort of looking at the Gnostic texts before the King King James Bible or before the Roman Catholic Church, you know, institutionalized and got rid of certain texts by the what is it, three hundred AD or something like that. Yeah, so I think the the, the, the relationship between the three of them um, in, is an important one to understand in reconstructing an uncertain, potentially suffering, low-pollution future. Because we're on this trajectory of certainty and every bit of that, uh, every kind of part of... of of the machine that is trying to stabilize, control, and make certain life all the time is constantly vulnerable to actually li- to life, which can never be controlled and never have certainty yeah. and never be devoid of suffering. I think Pandora comes in with suffering because she's both medicine in inebriation through, through ferments, um, fermented foods, I mean, for, for listeners who haven't come across, you know, the, I guess the latest science on the, on the microbiome and just how important the gut microbiome yeah. is for not just human health, but also as a primary source of intelligence. Yeah. I see Pandora as the gut. Yeah. That's, okay. Because that's yeah. insight. Yeah. She, she is mm. there. And so what, the, yeah, she, so she's the primary form. Prometheus is the mind, which is always, you know, the seeing eye or, you know, the foresight, if you like. Haven't really come up with an organ for Epimetheus. But I, I'm, Memory, perhaps? <laughs> well, no, that's, that's Prometheus because the jar that he makes, the tool, the, the glass, is third kind of memory specific to humans. So once we make the cup that can be then passed on to the next generation and then on, and, how, and showing how um, the clay cup can be made, can be passed on. So that becomes a third type of memory that is not, while there are birds and beavers and other, you know, numerous animals that build, that have an architectural, you know, that are builders of, of form. I guess we're the only animal that, that is the, is the techni- technical being. Yeah, so Prometheus creates this third type of memory that, that Bernard Steigler, um, or Stiegler, the French philosopher, talks about. He writes in a book called Techniques and Time, I think. Goes into a lot of depth on, on that third type of memory. Yeah. I think Epimetheus, I keep sort of thinking, well, the heart is compassion and he's the fool. He's, he's the counterbalance to serious progress tool-making, certainty. Mm. He's sort of like the flippant one, the one that was left out of the forum, the, the artist, the musician, the storyteller. Yeah, the one... But then I think compassion is also in Pandora as well. So it would be neat that the three central organs, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the gut, the mind or the brain and, and the heart <laughs> were, you know, matched to those three. But I haven't quite managed a way of doing that <laughs> yeah. yet. Um, for yourself like was understanding that myth an important part of I guess making a change in your life or did you you know did you was it the other way around did you notice certain things that weren't didn't feel quite right and then you sort of you know come back to this place of you know discovering this myth and maybe starting to incorporate that into your own life and enriching your understanding of it which way was it well, I've never been well-adjusted to Krishnamurti's profoundly sick society. <laughs> and so I think I've always looked for why that is and um, finding out about the myth and how our creation myth was corrupted was a big 
part of the relief, I suppose, for because first, before you can act, there has to be understanding. Why are we? Why are we a society that is a wrecking society, a barging society? Why are we that? I mean, we're we're also a society of lovely, generous, warm, giving people. But but why ultimately is our do we rely on an economic form that is trashing the planet? How, how have we arrived there? How, how have we got there? Well, it's a long and slow movement. It's, it's, it's generation after generation. It's step by step. It's inch by inch. And so much so that this is now very normal for us to be both warm and loving, volunteers, givers, and complete destroyers. Our way that we get our food and energy resources on the whole, in mainstream society, is a direct attack on the living, flowering world every single day. Yeah. And, and that's whether we're a vegan, vegetarian or omnivore. Every pulse, grain, fruit and nut in Australia farming of a, on, a, on a reasonable scale, well, on a commercial scale, even small organic farms, requires the wholesale killing of wild birds. So while burger rings might be a vegan-friendly product, what the violence that's packed into those packets from the packaging itself and, and the means of distribution, uh, sorry, production and distribution, is an assault on the planet. But, you know, foods are presented as, as being either ethical or this or that and labelled uh, with certain words that actually don't end up meaning very much. Yeah. They, they don't actually show the, all the dots of how that food has come together. Yeah. And, and almost every resource that is bought in Australia, I would, be, I would go on a limb and say, is a great act of violence against the living world. Yeah. And you don't have to have the world's best investigative journalists to unpack every single brand or every single product to understand that. You just actually have to step back and see great desertification of, you know, the increasing deforestation, the increasing plastic in the waters, the increasing disparity between rich and poor the increasing poverty because of desertification or because of war or mineral, you know, blood minerals in, in the Congo or wherever you, wherever you step, you, um, our resources come with a very bloody and high price. And therefore, that led me to permaculture. How do we become accountable mammals of place again? How do we involve ourselves in our own violence? So we, we don't eat abattoir meat. We're, we, we call ourselves 90% vegans. <laughs> we eat um, about 5% dairy, eggs, um, and about 5% meat. Most meat is either roadkill or unwanted roosters that are given to us. Occasionally we snare rabbits or zero. Our little Jack Russell brings us back a rabbit. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, he's become quite good at that. Yeah. So, yeah, a little bit of animal protein probably akin to how much animal protein a cow gets from munching grass and eating all that animal insect larvae and mm. animal insects in the, in the grass. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, uh, maybe that's 1% of their diet, I don't know, but it's a little bit of animal protein. Mm. But we are close, most of the food we eat, we, have, we know its origin point. That, to me, is a big part of our environmentalism. And the same with our energy. We have a one kilowatt solar system on the roof that kind of powers the lights, I suppose. And the fridge, which we've, we're only weeks away from getting rid of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is now the cellar is in full operation. And yeah, our food is, a lot of our food is within walking and bike riding distance. That's another. Of course, a bike is a, is a tool that has come from mined material, but we don't have to keep putting in non-renewable energies into that mm. tool 
So we see it as a, I guess, a, an appropriate technique. Technique. Yeah. So Epimetheus is there, in 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 our legs, <laughs> and um, Prometheus is there in in the in the making of the tool. Yeah. Yeah. And Pandora is there because we've got good gut micro microecology, which keeps us healthy, which keeps us on the bike. <laughs> I got, a, I got a, a question to ask, and I want to come back to something else. But how do you feel physically, emotionally, um, socially, living this way? Can you reflect on maybe the changes in your own life? Yeah, and just how, how you are. I feel like an oddball. Oh, do you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel. Uh, yeah, I mean, I. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, we joke that it's sort of tongue-in-cheek we call ourselves neo-peasants. I mean, when you choose to be a peasant, you're obviously acting from the middle classes. Yeah. And, you know, my education has come from that, and my background is middle class. I suppose, more seriously, I feel really connected to my peasant ancestry yeah. in the way in which we live. And that wasn't that far back. We're only talking a few generations back. Yeah, I mean, they they were peasants then became working class, industrial wage slaves, kind of kicked off the commons, what, 400 years ago, ended up in the English and probably Welsh mining industries or, and then both free and not free uh, arrived in Australia as boat people and, and dispossessed were part of the dispossessing wave of of Aboriginal people. So the stories that exist here in this area, the old stories, ancient, the the volcano of Mount Franklin, which is Coca-Cola's big bottle water product, or named after, that product is named after, Mm. a very sacred Jajurong mountain called Laugenburg, and it has been called Balkanbuk for at least 10,000 years when it last erupted, only 10,000 years ago. And there's a creation story in that that is really dear to Jajurong people. But that mountain passed by Lady and Lord Franklin and renamed in an instant. And, and now it's a, a major corporate logo. <laughs> so, you know, those sorts of histories and stories are really, I guess, have been important to me to understand about emplacing here in this country, on mm. this country. So the Jajurong uh, stories are not my own to tell, and but I do, I, I am, at the same time, they're really important to listen to, to be, to be heard. And then the stories that have come here are some of the species we saw in the forests next to those old-timer Jajurong species of wattles and poetussics and native cherry and dianellas and lamandras and ringtail possums. Alongside all those species, the oaks and hollies and hawthorns and blackberries of my peasant ancestral past and of which we forage all that food and, and the rabbit and the fox, of course. And the hawthorns, and I, I suppose this is what I wanted to show you this morning on our walk, the, the hawthorn becoming the dominant habitat tree for the ringtail possum is a beautiful, non-human moment of reconciliation between ecology's past and ecology's present. And I do not see that forest as weed native, weed native, that is such a classic platonic way of relating. Mm. There are species have always moved. They've all, always migrated. Blackberries are a dominant species up there, but they can be worked with to become less dominant and that the laying of them down, taking the fire risk out of them, to become a green mulch for the forest floor for other things to come up and shade them out. Yeah. That sort of succession thinking, that low intervention and succession, succession thinking is a really big part of, um, of, our, of our practice here as neo-peasants. And peasants always, and indigenous communities, always had a close 
relationship to um, to the living world beyond just the human. So, yeah, I think to get back to your question, it's a long rambling answer to um, a physically remarkable since, I mean, the older I get, I feel stronger and fitter. Yeah. And that's because of our non-industrial diet, that over 10 years we have eaten in season, walked for, often fermented, directly picked food. And you cannot, there's no lab that science that I'm aware of that has actually done any studies to suggest that. The studies are supermarket organic food and supermarket conventional, conventionally grown food. And it's like, well, they sort of work out being about the same in terms of nutrition. Well, of course, because they're stored for long distances. They've been transported long distances and they don't have any direct hand-to-mouth relationship. Yeah. That, that's health in itself. Mm. Walking for your food is health, <laughs> let alone the non-storage of food. So you, you're getting really freshly picked wild apples, freshly picked hawthorn berries that we turn into fruit leathers or fruit jerkies, if you like. Yeah. So I think... Yeah, the way, the, so yeah, I, I'm aging. My eyesight is going, which is shocking. That's because I'm spend too much time with books. But the rest of me is, I, I guess, yeah, I, I just feel incredibly fit. We, we were a two car household, like, like the average Australian household. When you first moved here? Yeah. 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 And that was a big part of our transition. Getting rid of the first car parking the second car in the garage with a logbook on the seat for a year. And every time we used it, we wrote why we needed it. Mm. And then at the end of the year, we sold the car because there wasn't enough reason for having it. Yeah. And so the average Australian car now costs, according to NRMA and RACV figures, just under $15,000 a year, the average Australian car. In Depreciation or petrol. Depreciation, or petrol, wear and tear, insurance, yeah. maintenance, licenses, everything factored in. Yeah. The average Australian household has, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, has just over two cars. So that's 30 grand a year that the average household. That's like, that's another mortgage. <laughs> yeah. And so giving up our cars not only freed us from an economic system, that we felt completely trapped in. Um, I was a builder. Meg was working for online companies as an editor and just feeling completely trapped, incarcerated, and knowing that this economic system is trashing the world but not knowing how to stop it. Yeah. The cars were the, the thing that did it. It's like 50% of our required income or even more gone in an instant, even though we're not... Our cars were not the average Australian cars. They were cheap bombs. And, and you know, it was probably more like, you know, $15,000 for the two cars. But yeah. that's still, that was half our income. Yeah. Half, half our household income. Yeah. So we're now, like, way below, below the poverty line. The only thing we have, I guess, as a big, you know, industrial money market trap is our mortgage. But then that, for the land, to have access to land to grow the 150 fruit and nut trees and vegetables and plants and have ch- keep chooks and ducks. There's a there's a price there. Yeah. So to have a sort of more permanent access to land to enact that kind of economy, but we don't have the other mortgage of of the cars, and that that is that has enabled us to ramp up our transition from from the you know 100 percent de- dependency on the global monetary economy to about 40%. Yeah. And we're fitter. We never have to go to the doctors. We <laughs> never get, we rarely get colds. And if we do, um, Meg has this mean, what she calls a mistress tonic yeah. uh, of horseradish and garlic and ginger and just vine- apple cider vinegar that brews for six months. Oh, wow. I might have to get some of that off. Over, I'm feeling, yeah. <laughs> feeling a bit coldy right now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we'll definitely have some, bef- have a shot before you go. Yeah. And then sometimes we do get sick and it's just time to go to bed and mm. rest and, yeah, turn all the, 
the lights off and all the power off and just yeah bring it down. I think that sometimes that's good for our immune system anyway to have a bit of a, a test or a, a run. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But you know, apart from a common cold, it's we're, we've been car free now for seven years and supermarket free for eight or nine years. Wow. Supermarket free. Yeah. We did, when we went for our big 400-day bike ride up the east coast of Australia, we did have to go back into Coles and Woolies and IGA. Yeah. We were away from our food system and food communities, local growers and the co-op and our own veggie patches, the community gardens that we're involved in. Uh, But apart from that 14 months um, at, at home, we, yeah, we're, never supported coals locally. It's just a wonderful thing. <laughs> what was that like going back into a coals and a woolies was, after that? It was lock? shocking, actually. Was it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was really shocking. <laughs> it was distressing. I mean, our whole point of our big trip was to account for or, or to document all the wild foods in Australia from traditional Aboriginal bush tuckers to, uh, through to feral and weed species. Yeah. And so we wrote, in the book that we wrote, we list the 250, 60-odd species that we documented and ate. And yeah. Yeah. We, we set out to write a book on foraging in Australia, really. Okay. But um, the memoir was the, was, was, was the thing that um, the publisher who approached us, well, I think this will, this will sell. Yeah. <laughs> so we went along with that. But we would really like to write that book one day. Yeah. Yeah. It's just going to be... A long, time-consuming thing. Yeah, okay. We don't want to poison anyone. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But yeah, so most of the trip was to see how we could enact a kind of permaculture travel. How do we Mm. apply permaculture principles, which are mainly embedded in settlement, in settled Mm. environments, suburbia or towns? How can we apply that to a mobile, nomadic life? So... Yeah, I guess that's what our book is about, like how we how we apply permaculture principles to the road. Yeah. yeah. It's called The Art of Free Travel. Yep. It's on the bookshelf there, as we mentioned. Mm. Um, just to cut back to, I think, a conversation we had last night as well about, you kind of said that one of the first decisions you talked about getting rid of cars being a really important decision that's helped you along this path. But one mm. of the first one was a very small one in just getting rid of bin liners. Yeah, that's well. where we started 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Meg and I said, right, it's time. We've got our worm farm. We've got chooks. We've got our compost bays. We no longer need bin liners because we can just, I mean, we still regrettably have a little bit of anthropogenic waste that goes out onto the curb a fortnight mostly we yeah we're not at the position where we can say we're a no waste household but we're extremely low waste household and yeah 10 years ago getting rid of the bin liner was our uh, marked our the beginnings of our transition and i think that's the thing like we we seem like radical freaks now but it's only it's come about by just small incremental changes starting at looking at you know, using calico bags to do our shopping to before, you know, that was three or four years before, you know, we took the more uh, larger steps of becoming supermarket and car free. And yeah. Just to cut back as well, back to the, um, the creation myth stuff and that mm. being corrupted. I guess the way you're living, one of the things you mentioned on that walk as we were coming around the garden was that this, this is a response. The way you're living, you see it as a response to, I guess, the crisis that's happening around us. Mm. How do you, and I think what you're, what you're talking about there with the myth is that, you know, an, I guess a better intuitive understanding of that myth or embedding of that myth or a um, storytelling of that myth would, maybe over the longer term, but help shift the emphasis that we have on, mm. you know, tools and techniques and uncertainty yeah. how do you think that might happen how do you think that storytelling is it through like living examples like what you're doing here or are there mm. other ways that that can become you know that myth can start to be uh permeate us more i think by you inviting me onto your podcast <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm a, i'm just one storyteller of this of this particular myth but yeah i think 
it's such a fantastic story. There's such amazing... When I first learned about Prometheus and Epimetheus, I was really hostile to them. It was like, you know, classic... You know, I've, I've always been really interested in, in peasant and indigenous stories that are much more intimate and not the big big sort of egotistical stories of, that the Greeks were so brilliant at. But the more I've come to uh, be in relationship with that story, the more I see Prometheus, Epimetheus and Pandora as just awesome figures, like remarkable characters that have just endless amounts of interpretation and meaning that emanates. And that's what good um, figures or good, good characters in a myth does it it there's not there's not a black and white we can interpret and in many different ways and as as classical what i call the the sort of misogynistic fathers of 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 classical greece did they they interpreted the story and and we've paid the price of that we still live in that misogynistic world we Mm. still have aggregating you know not still have we have aggregating um, violence towards women because we're Promethean only, not because Prometheus is a problem. Mm. You know, we, we foreground tools and we background ecological knowledge. And ecological knowledge is the mother. Pandora is the mother. Yeah. This is the sa- sacredness and sanctity of the world. Yeah. And we don't listen to the mother. Mm. I know that sounds very hippie, but we, uh, we don't. Mm. <laughs> we have silenced her in all our institutions yeah and i you know this is nothing to do with politicians becoming prime ministers that are women this is that's nothing to do with it that's that's co-option of promethean platonicness institutionalism into 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 female domain it's got nothing to do with pandora it's got nothing to do with the flowering earth yeah. That's just to do with um, tr- attempting to claim some of that outrageous power that men have have owned. I get that. I, I get the whole... It's, it's not that I'm against women being in those positions of power. That That's fantastic. But, but I want to see men and women... I, I, feel, I believe the only way we can re- recreate ecological society in our own way, in our own form, not as a not as a universal way, not in not in a one solution to one problem way, hmm. is to identify Epimetheus and Pandora in the scenario. Who are they? What do they actually mean? Hmm. For hmm. me, the precautionary principle of Epimetheus is what is missing. Yeah, and the sanctity and sacredness of the earth in Pandora, Mm. in wild ecology, in unpredictable ecology. Mm. That is what's missing. Those two things are missing. (laughs) We only have Prometheus. Yeah. You know, I think there was a blockbuster American Hollywood film came out a few years ago called Prometheus. Yeah. Um, Of course. If we hear anything about that myth, it's only Prometheus. That he stole fire from Heptatus, I think that's how you pronounce it, the industry god and gave to man and from ever and from that story on from that point on we have been smart and intelligent because we had tools and the other animals didn't ha ha hmm. that's the way it's told yeah it's 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 a shocking that's why we're in such a shocking place because the, that myth if it is told at all that is all we know of it you talked about one probably good example of it in the james cameron film avatar where yes. you know that the planet's called Pandora, and it is that real—it's mm. that war, I guess, about the mm. humans coming to mine and to mm. to rip that place apart. Yeah, and then yeah, I guess the balance or the yeah the other two parts coming to counter that from the indigenous people, and the indigenous mm. biology there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's such a great film of the Amazon, really, really. Yeah. I mean, it might be <laughs> futuristic planets, but it was, it's really American, I guess, Western corporate imperialism incursion on places like the Amazon. Yeah. I mean, I, that, I, I had brought that up with some friends, and they just, that's absolutely not true. But um, <laughs> for me, that's what Avatar was. It was, it was a, a, a very subtle, not so subtle in my mind, but for others, subtle remark on 
Yeah. Yeah. On on our creation myth and and why the indigenous folk in that film lived, you know, he, it was it was represented in very simplistic ways, so, but but nevertheless very connected mm. to they. Um, there was not anthropocentrism there. There wasn't just Plato and Prometheus in the room, like the um, like the colonizers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just thinking about you know different ways that, that myth can become more well known. I think um, for me, the just the idea of the importance of myth has been relatively new in mm. itself. I mm. think maybe I don't know if I'm alone in this or not, but. Myths were just fanciful, fanciful stories that were. I, I couldn't actually understand the relevance to me or mm. the people that I live with. Mm-hmm. I did. I guess I did have my own myths in a way. Like I grew up in a very Christian house, and the mm-hmm. myths, the stories of the Bible, were kind of my yeah. myths. But yeah. some of those meta myths, if you like, those bigger myths, I only just recently discovered through, I guess, Joseph Campbell's work and. Mm-hmm another author that I started reading a bit about as well. But I think in particular Joseph Campbell focuses a lot on the feminine and mm. the um, the goddess and just some other things that have been coming across too recently. There's this, this group of people that have this the workshop called Dancing Eros as well about men and women getting in touch with the feminine, feminine side a lot more. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it's, yeah, like there's a number of different ways that the imbalance can be corrected and we can start to bring those, you know, that consideration in a particular circumstance mm. that you're talking about there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, yeah, to get back to an earlier question to dovetail into that one, the way in which we live is a walking before the talking, I suppose, in a way. Like the talking came first, of course. But now it's more important. But now for us it's more important that the performative, uh, as a household we call ourselves, I don't know if I've mentioned this, artist as family. And so artist as family is our kind of collective. In a way where Meg and I come, well, we, we come from the arts, but permaculture is our kind of exit strategy from industrial art production. Yeah. Um, to another form of production mm. that's much more specific to applied ecology. But it, nevertheless, it's still within that tradition of the arts, but but not so much the industrial arts, what I call the industrial arts. And I know I'm, I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, but the thing that, that really I guess I'm, I became very clear about is that while we mine the world and through that mining grow food and through monocultures, and we take those monocultures that we don't know where they are, originless food from monocultures, where islands like Nauru have been mined for superphosphates to keep those monocultures fertile. We take in all that violence and all that awareness, no accountability into our guts, and then we make art. What sort of art are we making when the food in our bodies is being fueled by originless food. Well, of course, we're going to be making industrialized art. So that's when I use the word industrial art. That's basically if we're eating food that comes from industrial processes, like what supermarkets sell, and that's what fuels us, that's what gives us the energy to live, then we, you know, that energy is trans, transformed into industrial art or industrial production, yeah. industrial science, industrial living. Yeah, And, of course, we're living in a digital industrial society now. But it's not post-industrial. Any academic that uses that term, I get very cross with. (laughs) It's like we are not post-industrial. We are maybe in thinking forward in our kind of Promethean minds. We want to become, I think there's many people who want to become post-industrial. We want to become post-imperialist and post-patriarchal. I think many of us want that. But while we continue to buy food from supermarkets and use te- technologies that require mining of non-renewable resources, mm. we are just in, we we remain industrial. And so, many things in this house are from industrial 
processes. Ten years ago, when we were in, when we had the ability to to, to get a mortgage in Dalesford, which was cheap back then, we made really poor decisions that we're still living with in terms of materials that we live with, etc. Mm. And slowly, bit by bit, we're retrofitting. David Holmgren calls it retro suburbia, the book that he's working on at the moment, which is all about how to, with very little money, apply ecology into the very industrial suburbs yeah. and, and home places that we've been living in. Yeah. So it doesn't become some permaculture or you know, some utopia somewhere else, but actually permaculture becomes a pragmatic response to what we've inherited. Yeah. I don't think that did answer your question. Your question, <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was something I wanted to say, say it about industrial art production. And so, artist's family is a is an I guess a, a performance group. Um, yeah, and yeah. the way in which we live, the way we get our resources, is like performance art. Yeah, it's just not recognised in you know avant garde circles or mm. you know particularly urban urbanized ideas of culture yeah but that that's okay we're we're okay with that (laughs) (laughs) um we are starting to wrap up as well you've got Mm -hmm. to you've got to go to the library to talk about your book Mm -hmm. so i've got a couple of questions but before i do maybe just even reflecting on that from my own time here yeah like we arrived here and it was dark but we just just a such an immediate sense of feeling welcome in this place and comfortable Mm -hmm. And you put us up at uh, your, I guess it's a tiny house mm. that you Airbnb out. It's yeah. available to people to come yeah. and, and stay and experience yeah. a bit of what yeah. you're doing here yeah. as well. The pays for our mortgage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like the conversations that we have, the way you eat. So you've got some people that help here as well. Yeah. You call, well, they're kind of like woofers or what do you actually? Swaps, yeah. Swaps, yeah. So they get food and board in exchange yeah. for helping you create a bit more of yeah. what you're creating here? A non-monetized learning. Mm. So it's this sideways learning because everyone always brings great knowledge with them. Yeah. So there's sideways learning, um, but there is also hierarchical learning. And I think just by the fact that Meg and I are in our 40s and, and the people, that, the swaps that come here usually are in their 20s or the early 30s and they're on the beginning of their permaculture transition and so we're a little bit on in that stage and so we've got heaps to, to pass on so they come and help in the labors of the everyday while at the same time learn the transition from the monetary economy into what we call the regenerative economy yeah 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 and so i mean i just reflecting on the artist's family and the performance art that you're doing here like i have got so much to to think about and come away with just from being around you for about 24 hours or even less than that. And so I just wanted to reflect that back to you as well. Uh, like it's been amazing to uh, just hang you. out. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's, <laughs> I really like to hear that. I think that's the other thing about permaculture is that I have been a forest activist. I have been a political activist banging on the doors of power to change. But permaculture, uh, I mean, David Holmgren would say he's the, one of the co-originators of the permaculture movement, and he lives nearby, and he's a mate of ours. Mm-hmm. David would say, and Bill, I think, or one of them said years ago, something along the lines of, um, you, actually, it wasn't them. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, um, it was the guy that did the geodesic germs. What's his name? Anyway, the, the sentiment is, if the old model stinks create a new model or model up, scale up. I completely botched that quote, but (laughs) somewhere in there I'm trying to say uh, positive activism of permaculture where you live your ethics, Mm. you actually perform your ethics, is takes all the anxiety. We still have anxiety about the world, but not to the extent that we both did as a couple when we first came together. The world is suffering, you know, at the hands of, Prometheus going it alone. How do we, what can we do? Well, you know, Meg and I have been to blockades. We've, we've you know, that, that is important to stand up and resist. Absolutely. Mm. 
but in le- if, you, if you're then going to the supermarkets or you know, jumping on planes and flying all around the world at a whim, mm. what I call indulgence tourism, then you know, all that work you're doing at the blockades is completely undone. Mm. And it's not, it's not to say that people shouldn't travel. I'm not saying that. Or you know, trying to say that supermarkets are purely evil. They're not purely evil. They're mostly evil. <laughs> <laughs> but the, yeah, I think I think I think it's the what we get from what we do is not the negative story. The negative story we've all heard, and I know that I've talked a lot about it today. But it is actually what one can do in the face of that, mm. and empower yourself through. You know, something like remodeling an economic economy in your home and community economy yeah. that doesn't fully participate, even if it doesn't participate 10% or 15% the next year and slowly gets to, you know, down to not participating 60% after 10 years like we have. Mm-hmm. We are 60% non-reliant on the industrial military complex. That's fucking great. <laughs> I'm really wrapped with that. Yeah. And as a result, we've brought so much greater joy into our lives. We don't, we don't go out and work for the man mm. every single, well, five days a week. Yeah. Meg works for David Holmgren and Sue Dennett for two days a week, and I get, I get paid for writing gigs here and there. But mostly I'm digging vegetables, foraging mushrooms, you know, the economy is, is in our cellar and in our wood stack that we've walked for most of that food. And, of course, the little bits of money from Airbnb and Meg working for David and Sue, that contributes to our bills. And our, but our bills are really small these days, yeah. really tiny. Yeah. And so it is possible to live under the poverty line and be joyful. <laughs> yes. I think that's our, you know, I think that's what people get from this. Yeah. That we're not living in a cave. We we are living in kind of suburbia. Yeah. But we're not having to be we're not incarcerated. Yeah. We feel empowered than <laughs> you ever have. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's not through throwing shitloads of money and tools at it. It's actually through just accruing a little bit little by little knowledge about how this local biosphere works and how the community works and how we can establish the flow of gifts mm-hmm. yeah I'll just check if we've got time for my last two questions mm, maybe if you give snappy answers okay, we've got time. Um, see what I can do the, uh, the first one's just about it's about I, I guess you know it's I ask people to reflect on it, something they imagine disrupting one day like they're not part of disrupting at the moment, like a subtle disruption that they'd like to be part of changing in the future. Is this something you daydream about when that question or something that comes to mind when I ask that question? Yeah. Sending industrial food complex completely broke. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and that doesn't take everybody that that what I've I guess when I've given talks and spoken on things like this um, podcast, I always think just 15%. Big corporations need 15, 17% growth. You know, that's what they're looking at. That's ideal. You know, obviously they want more, but if, if 15% of us in, in the affluent countries of the world, so privileged middle classes, if 15% of us saw a service or, or duty to both live a, a more pleasurable life and a less freaked out life but at the same time in corporate non-participation of big corporate interests mm. we would send these companies broke yeah and create a completely different and this is not an eco product george monbiot talks about eco products just being another market another market in the big global pool of money mm. it's actually about what samuel alexander talks about sending the monetary economy into degrowth. Money must grow. We've both read Graber's book, Debt, the first 5,000 years. Money must grow. It must keep writing IOUs. It must keep writing IOUs and 
therefore it has to it is complicit with a growth economy yeah so therefore to demonetize one's household community economy i think that's the that's the biggest disruption i would yeah. like to i mean I, i guess i'm already on that you've asked what else there is i think it's probably advocating yeah and and inspiring others to do the same yeah just 15% yeah. not not 60% yeah just 15% disrupt will disrupt yeah. the stat the, the corporatized status quo yeah and so i think i think there's 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 room to inspire i think there's 15% of us are out there i really do right. yeah it's a great yeah. way to look at it yeah yeah we might just park the last question and uh, leave it for this time but thanks so much for the chat Patrick it's uh, been awesome it's been a pleasure yeah yeah really enjoyed hanging out here and I think we'll definitely love to come back and hang uh, out some more you're yeah. most welcome hey thanks so much for listening the question I was left pondering after my time with Megan Patrick was how can my life also be a living artwork if you like sharing your thoughts on my conversation with Patrick you can do so by posting something on the Facebook page through Twitter or Instagram or even by sending me an email to adam at subtledisruptors.com. And of course, let me know if there are subtle disruptors you think I should know about. Coming up next week, I'll be talking with Penny Lacasso about her work in empowering women to make change. I'm Adam Murray, and I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected, and resolute in your own quest of subtle disruption. Bye for now. Bye for now.